out the back door. They're already on their way. Well, again, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And um, just at the beginning of the year, we like to go back to some basics. And while I was out, Jake preached on loving one another. And when I got back in the saddle last Sunday, I preached on the love of God. God is love from 1 John. And what I want to do this morning is preach from one of Jesus' parables and try to attach that to last week. Last week our focus was that God is love. And what I want to look at this morning is what can that do to you if you don't believe that? How, how, how does that affect you if that doesn't really get into your heart that, that God is love? So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25 beginning in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, the text is there in the bulletin. I, I, I've noticed in some movies in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and even seen this some on TV shows, that uh, I, I've seen shows use the device of going backward. You may have seen the movie Memento that came out oh, around the year 2000 or so. And it, doesn't go in, it goes in reverse chronological order. It doesn't go in, in chronological sequence. And uh, that's something that's been done in literature for, for quite some time, but, I, but you may have seen it on the screen. I want to encourage you as we read this parable, do not do that with this parable, or you won't hear it correctly. If you, and the reason I'm saying that is this parable has a jarring ending. And if you take that jarring ending and then travel back into the parable, it's going to skew how you view it. Hear the parable the way it's coming to you in the sequence that Jesus gives to you. So obviously, that's how I'm going to read it. I'm not going to read it backward, uh, shockingly. But I want you to hear it that way. And again, I want you to hear it with this question in mind. If I don't really believe that God is as loving as He says He is, what does that do to me? What does that do to a person? Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and 
gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an account a month or two ago about an Asian family who live in an area where sometimes North Koreans flee to when they're able to escape North Korea, and specifically uh, children. And this family has a ministry of trying to take in some of these North Korean orphans and care for them, and and even try to place them in families. And um, I believe they live actually in China. And what they're doing is not legal, and and it's not safe. So it's a big deal. In the part that I read about, at one point they had 10 North Korean children. And the father said something that he observed one night. Well, not just observed, he felt. He went in this room to check on the children when they were sleeping... And one of the North Korean boys, and I believe he said this was after a month or two of living with this family, one of the boys had crushed up a light bulb and had placed broken glass uh, at the door threshold. And so this father got up, I guess was barefoot or in socks, and he stepped on it. Of course, it was very painful and woke them up. But the boy had done that because, and I don't say this flippantly, but just to make the point, you know, you can take the boy out of North Korea, but you weren't yet getting the North Korea out of the boy. And what I mean was, even though he was surrounded by all these gestures of, I care about you, you're safe, we want to make sure you end up in a good place, we love you, and that was coming at them all day, every day, it just was not getting in. And he still was having to live like, I, if I don't handle it, I, trust no one, trust no one. Now, with, with that in your, in your ears, look back at the quote on the front of the bulletin. And this same quote was on the front last week. But look at that first one by Martin Luther. And think about how big a statement this is theologically. And Martin Luther was a learned man. And he says this, The sin underneath all our sins. That is, that is painting with a broad brush. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent. He means Genesis chapter 3. That we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. The sin underneath all the other sins is 
I do think Jesus was a good man. I do think he died on the cross. I, I, I mean, isn't that strange to say that that at all could be the foundation of sin? I do think he's a great teacher. I think he was a great man. I think he was a loving man. I think he died on the cross. But uh, trust no one. And if I don't put my hands on it, if I can't see it, it's not real. That that's the sin underneath all the other sins. Again, this, this parable is a real window into that. Um, to say it again, what I want to look at is how, how through the characters in this parable are we seeing what it does to us as, uh, in how we perceive God and specifically how we perceive Jesus. That that's not just a theological compartment of our life. It affects our very being. It sure affects how we behave. So let's ask two questions of the parable. The first one sort of housekeeping. What does the parable mean? Because Jesus starts out and he says, it's like this, a man. What is it? And and who's the man? And who are the servants? So what does the parable mean? But the second one, to really start to draw in on some application is, how does perception affect behavior? How does perception, specifically perception of who God is, how does that affect behavior? All right, and first off, just housekeeping to get on the same page. What does the parable mean? Now go back to the verse 14, the start of the parable. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. It will be like a man going on a journey. What is it? Who's the man? How do you answer those questions? To answer those questions, you have to back up into Matthew chapter 24. That's the context. This is Matthew 25. Let's back up. At the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus makes an audacious statement. He said, the, the, the disciples are talking about how amazing the temple is, the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, do you see that building? A day is going to come where there won't be one stone of it on top of the other. Now to us, we know that. At least it's, it's certainly diminished now. To them, that's unthinkable. The temple is not just the most important building in Judea. It's the most important building on the earth. When the temple's gone, the earth is over. That would be their, their mindset. So they're sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and there's a straight, you can see the temple. And they ask him, when will that happen? Because they're thinking, that'd be the end of the world. He starts telling them, really more things. But eventually he starts talking about the end of the world. But listen to what he keeps talking about. Because if you don't understand this, you won't understand the parable. This is from the, Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will, will be proclaimed through, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Verse 27. As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that's what Jesus loved to call Himself, the Son of Man. Verse 30, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 37, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 44, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The last one, and really, since you've heard the passage, listen to this. Verses 46 and 47. Blessed is that servant 
whom his master will find so doing when he comes, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now that's the end of 24. Matthew 25 starts with a parable. What's the parable? It's a parable of a bridegroom. There are these ten virgins. The bridegroom goes away for a time and then he comes back unexpectedly. And some of the virgins are ready and some are not. And it's a parable about the second coming. And then right when that parable ends, he tells this one. All right. When he says, it will be like, what's it? It's the second coming of the Son of Man. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Someone who's been away and he comes back. If that's true, then when he says, it will be like a man who goes on a journey. Who's the man? It's himself. Now, sometimes when Jesus told parables, he's, he's not the character. But in this one, Jesus is both the teller and he's the main character. The man who goes on a journey, who comes back, is Jesus. The coming back is the second coming. That's what the parable is about. Now, before I go on to, the, to the, the, the question, I do need to say this or I feel like I would be asleep at the wheel. Um, and I'm not, this is not something I'm going to go into depth about. We're drawing out that implications of this, but it is incredibly important to remember that Jesus comes back. That's just basic Christian orthodoxy. I mean, if you look at just distilled versions of what is the historic Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, they both make a big deal out of that. He comes back, not as a concept. He comes back physically, bodily. And he says that when I do that, everyone in the world will know it, and no one will be expecting it. There'll be people at the grocery store when Jesus comes back. There will be people at sports events when Jesus comes back. There'll be people doing yard work when Jesus comes back, and it will surprise everyone. That's how it will be. That, that needs to be said. But let's start to, to ask these questions of it. All right. How does perception affect behavior? And before, I want, before we look at the servants, those three servants, I want you to think about the man, the master. What have you learned about him in the beginning of the parable? Before you get to the, the scary part, what have you learned about him? Now, there's not tons of detail, but think about what Jesus tells you really about himself. First off, he says that this man entrusts his own property to these servants. He's not managing other people's stuff. It's his stuff. It's his property. And just so you'll know, when it says talents, it's not talking about, you know, I'm really good at weaving. Or, or you know, I make great tree houses or something like that. That's fantastic. I make horrible tree houses. But we have a guy in our church that makes awesome tree houses, and he rescued me. The talent is a monetary unit. Um, a talent would roughly be equivalent to 20 years wages for an average laborer. So if you just, in round numbers, if you do the math, if a, if a day laborer could make, let's say, $30,000, a talent would be in the neighborhood of six hundred to $700,000. And to his least highly performing servant, he gives that much. He gives six, $700,000 of his own money and stuff to him. Two to the mid-range guy, five to the high achiever, but lots to the one. 
That's, and all right, how long is he entrusted to them? Did you catch this, this detail? Look in verse 19. It says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled. And what you're already seeing is, he's not... Have you ever had a micromanager watching your work? It's horrible. Is he a micromanager? No. I entrust it to you. I'm going to be gone. And he's gone for a long time and he's not phoning in all the time. It's their thing. And did you catch this detail? It says that he, he, he divvied out his property according to their ability, which means he knows them. And he knows that not everybody's a five-talent guy. Not, not everybody's a one-talent guy. You may have had a manager or a boss or a supervisor that gave you more than you can handle, and it's horrible. But it's not great either when you've had somebody that won't entrust anything important to you and they're always under-tasking you or giving you little projects or little work when you're capable of so much more. That's, that's infuriating. And this guy doesn't do either one of that. He knows who the servants are, what they're capable of. So according to their ability, he divvies out his stuff. And did you notice this? When he comes back, the five-talent guy doubled it. And he responds to him, well done, validates him. Well done, you're faithful, enter into the joy of your master. When the sort of average guy, the two-talent guy, doubles it, the master responds exactly the same. Exactly the same. In fact, to both of them he says, you've been over little, I'll give you much. Man, if little, the two and the five are into the millions now. So if that's a little, to give them much is a lot. And he says it to both of them. If that's all you knew about him, you'd have to say, I, I like him, you know? I mean, he's a man of authority, but he trusts them, and he seems magnanimous, and he doesn't micromanage. And my favorite thing is that to both the five and the two, he says that the real reward is not the responsibility or more money or anything. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that an interesting phrase? In other words, the joy is where I am. And so come be with me. Come be joyful with me. If that's all you knew about him, you'd have to say, I, I like him. I like him. So how do the servants respond to him? And I've already kind of said it. There's two kinds of responses. One is a good response. But there's two different types. You've got one guy that's a high achiever. And I told the 830 service this. I never noticed this about this parable till studying. Verse 16 says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with him. Everybody's known people like this. They got their papers in early and they will have done their taxes next week. And they'll be out April 14th, you know, eating out with friends with their tax refunds while the rest of us are nauseous. High performer, you know, with the, and, and since they're not working on the taxes, they're training for the marathon, uh, the whole deal. That's the five-talent guy. He gets it, boom, he's gone that day. He's probably investing an hour, you know, an hour from, that, from that time. And he doubles it. Fantastic. High performer. But then you have what we could call, he's just sort of a garden variety, just, you know, faithful Average servant. And it doesn't say he tore off at once, but over that long time he doubled it. Master is just as validating to him, just as joyful. Same reward. 
So that's the good response. Now, it seems that both of them, different guys, they get who he is. They get who he is. I can try things. He's entrusted these resources to quite a bit. And I can try something, and I might fail, but he's given me a long time, and I can learn from that, and I can try again. And so they try. And God uses it. But there is this guy that gets one talent. And it says that when he gets it, he does not invest it. He doesn't even deposit it. He buries it in the ground. When the master comes back, he digs it up and he gives it back to him. And he says why he did that. Why did he do that? He says, I'm scared of you. Why is he scared of him? What does he say? He says, because I know that you're harsh. And I know that you'll go reap over in land where you, you didn't sow seed over there. You'll reap so that you can have more money. And it frightened me. And I didn't want to make a mistake. And so I buried it. So here it is. Now, how does the master respond to him? And I want you to look at the two things he calls him. Verse 26, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. Wicked and slothful. Now, just, just a second on each, each of those terms. Is the wickedness that he didn't generate more money? Is that what the master critiques? What the master critiques is, oh, so you know me. Well, let's think about that. I mean, picture if you had a boss, supervisor, manager, whatever, and you, let's say you, you work in an office, and let's say that this boss just absolutely blows his stack when people leave dirty coffee mugs in the break room sink. That's his pet peeve, and he just blows his top when people do that. Now, let's say that there's a worker in that office and he leaves three dingy coffee mugs in the break room sink. And this supervisor comes in, he sees it, and he blows a stack, and he says, who left these here? And he finds out that it's this particular employee. And he comes to him and says, what is the deal? You know that irritates me. What would you think if that guy said to him, you stress me out. You, you get so angry when people leave cups there that it made me scared and I left my cups there. You would think... That makes 0.0% sense. That makes no sense. You just, you just indicted yourself by saying, I know that this drives you so crazy, so I did that very exact thing. This servant says, I know you're harsh. I know you reap where you didn't sow. So I did nothing. What is the first problem? He doesn't know the master. It is the more you sit in this parable and the more you look at what leads up to this moment, you have to say, he doesn't know him. And that is a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a big deal in the Bible. That what God says to people who are not saved at the end is not, you didn't perform enough. What he says at the end is, you did not know me and I did not know you. That's the condemnation. He's wicked, not because he's underperforming. He's wicked 
because he doesn't know the master when there was every opportunity to know him. And the master was sending clear signals the whole time. He's slothful. Well, let's put it this way. What's another word for slothful? Lazy. Um, What poses as caution and prudence can be laziness. You know, there's a proverb that talks about, there's a lion in the street, so I can't go to work. I better be careful not to step outside. I, I know I'll be safe from lions if I stay inside. That's a way to stay inside and not go to work. Um, I tried nothing because I wanted to be cautious. Well, maybe, but you also tried nothing because you tried nothing. And that was lazy of you. It was wicked and it was slothful. Now, what do we do with that? Have you ever heard the radio show? It's on NPR. Um, Oh, I just blanked out. This American Life. It's out at Chicago Public Radio, This American Life. It's hosted by a guy named Ira Glass. Ira Glass is from a Jewish background. Would probably call himself an agnostic. Uh, but he, he told the story of these Christian friends of his. They're Christian missionaries. And he told about what happened when they, <clears throat> excuse me, when they saw Schindler's List. And th- these friends said to him, it really helped us understand you better to see just this episode from Jewish history. But they went on to say that the scene of that movie that impacted them the most was the, is toward the end where Schindler is looking around at his things and he's a, he has means and that's why he was able to rescue some of these Jewish families um, with his means. But he's looking around at his things and he's saying like, wow, that watch, that could be a Jewish family. That piece of furniture, that could be a Jewish person. And he's just, he's looking around and he, he's, even with what he's done, he feels guilty. It could have been more, it could have been more, it could have been more. And they said that's how they feel all the time as missionaries. Because they said, when they go into a public place, a mall or a sports event or something, there's this overwhelming sense of, I could share the gospel with him. I could share the gospel with her. Or, they, or you know, you're buying something and, and somebody hands you the coffee across the counter and there's this sense of guilt of, Ugh, I don't just need to pay for my coffee, I need to engage this person about the gospel and that's going to be a missed opportunity. Uh. Um. Do we want to be fruitful? Yeah, we do want to be fruitful. Do we want to be productive people? Yes. Let's be productive. But that is a pressure cooker. And I would ask the question, what has crafted your view of Jesus, of what He's actually like? Because the problems can come from inside of us and they can come from outside of us. If you you have a super-duper sensitive conscience, if you're super conscientious, if you're type A, this can really do a number on you. Wow, I should, I should be obedient. Wow, I should do things for others. Wow, I should serve others. All that's true, but where now, when you step outside, it feels like, ugh, He expects so much of me. Which then means when you walk back in, you feel like, He's so disappointed with me all the time. And we need to ask the question, is that coming from him or from you? It can also come from bad teaching. 
when I was uh, when I was in campus ministry, worked with a young man. He didn't share this with me. He shared this with another staff member. He, he had been taught a lot about the importance of evangelism, that people who know Jesus need to share the good news <clears throat> Excuse me, with people who don't know Jesus. And that's great. That's great. We love that as a church. But this guy's dad died. And he shared with the staff member that he wondered if God was trying to, quote, get his attention that he wasn't doing enough evangelism and, and that, that, that his dad's death was his big wake-up call. Is that who God is? You're not obeying enough, <clears throat> so let me take you out at the kneecaps. That's so wrong-headed, I don't, I don't even know where to start, even though I've done a lot of it. So what, when he's not taking me out at the kneecaps, I must be obeying enough? Because that's wrong-headed. What has crafted how you feel about Jesus? How do, you, do you see Jesus looking at you, essentially saying, you just don't produce. You just don't produce. I die on the cross. I forgive your sins. And you just don't produce. You, that people don't become Christians. You don't cut enough checks. You don't minister to the poor enough. And he's just looking at you, just going... I, is that who he is? Okay, first things first. The first thing is not to produce for him. The first thing is to know him. God is love. The second person of the Trinity who became a man is love. If he was wrath, we would know it. Does he have wrath? Yes, he is emotionally invested. But he is love. Let me ask this question. So then how do you fear him the right way? Because the Bible has a high view of fearing God, fearing Jesus. But does this guy fear Jesus the right way? The one talent guy. No, he doesn't. It's the wrong way. How do you know good fear from bad fear? Think about it this way. If your fear of Jesus makes you back away from Him and makes you back away from trying things, that's not good fear. If the fear of Jesus makes you step toward Him, that's good fear. And I'll tell you who was onto this and made a beautiful song about this is the African-American Christian tradition which gave us the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? We sing this around Easter. What does that song say? What's the refrain? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to what? To tremble. Why would the crucifixion make me tremble? It's because when I look at the crucifixion, here's what I'm seeing. God is so holy and He hates sin so much. He can't just turn that off inside Himself. That the only way that somebody like me can enter into the joy of His Master is if He does that. And that is horrible. And He loves me so much that He'll send His Son and His Son loves me so much that He will willingly go that is rattling if we'll see it. But that's good fear. 
And that's good trembling. And it makes you want to step toward Him and not back away from Him. So here's the last question. If that really got in us and did affect our... If we perceived Him, not just knew the data, but like perceived that He's that way when I'm doing well, I think, and when I'm doing crummy, that that's who He is. What should we ask? We should ask this question. What do I need to try? And again, if you're a perfectionist, if you're a let me make sure that all my ducks are in a row before I even start thinking about this, that used to kill me in school. I couldn't start a paper until there was a perfect paper in my head. That's the way to have no paper. As one of my teachers could attest. You know... I guarantee you, in this room, there are some unbelievable things that are kind of rolling around inside of God's people. Some, and it might be something that you want to do in your neighborhood. Because you love Jesus. It doesn't have to be overtly evangelistic, but you want to do it unto Jesus in your neighborhood. You want to have a block party. You want to have these people over. You want to have that child over. There's something that you want to do in a mill village but it freaks you out because so much of it's unknown. And you might mess it up. Or there's something you want to do in the life of our church that we could try or that three or four people with you could try. But you're not taking the first step. Why are you not taking the first step? And it could be because you don't really get that He's for you. He's for you. He laid down His life because He's for you. And that if that's true, you can know Him. And you can try things. And here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that no one in this room who doesn't know Him stays like that. Because if you know Him, you'll love Him. Not perfectly, but you'll love Him. I don't want anyone to stay in a posture of not knowing Him. Knowing Him is the best. It is life. But I also want to pray that that thing that you have been wanting to try, but you have not tried because you're afraid that you'll get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, He'll punish you. Or He'll be mad at you. And He'll pop your knuckles that you're going to be so convinced of His goodness and love that you're going to try it. And we're going to see what God does. So let's pray that. Our Father, we do ask for Your mercy. Your mercy in the form of letting us know You as You really are. To know You, the one true God... In Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is eternal life. Father, any man or woman, child who's here today who doesn't know you, Jesus, would you show yourself to that person? Would you show what you're really like, that you are not harsh, you are not hard, you are not the taskmaster, you are holy. But you are love that they'll see it and feel it and step into it, toward it. 
Father, for the person who's sitting here this morning and they have, they've dreamed about what if someone did this? What if I did this? What if somebody tried this simply because we know you and love you and it would be a blessing to someone else? Lord, would you pour your love into our hearts and enable us to try? And we ask this in Jesus' name.